Suddenly, they heard footsteps coming down the hall. Al's eyes widened. Uh-oh, they must have heard me drop the book. Liz looked quickly around the room. What shall we do? Hurry! Al scooped up the book under one leg and went running on his other three legs down the hall. Follow me, lass. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. On today's episode, we'll bring you Chapter 12 from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, with special insights from our author lass, Jenny L. Cody, as she continues to make those connections between American history and a really, really ancient history. <laughs> oui, monsieur, and don't forget, I will be traveling to London and get to spend some time with mon cher Albert. Oh, brother, here we go. Oh, Al. <laughs> oh, no, stop it. My Albert is a sweet kitty. Aye, if you like that sort of thing. And I do. Obviously. Uh, would you two care for an introduction? Uh, no, lad. We've met before, lots of times then. That's not what I... But if you prefer, uh, bonjour, Scotty Dog. I am Lisette Brion, or you can just call me Liz. Really? Uh, greetings, lass. Maximilian Braveheart the Bruce here, or Max for short. I meant, don't you want me to introduce you? Well, uh, it's a wee bit late for that. Oui, mon ami. Have we not just already covered that? <sighs> Fine, Max and Liz, hosts of this podcast, along with, uh... Okay, where's Nigel? Hmm, I don't see him anywhere. Well, he is a wee mouse. <laughs> he could be hiding anywhere. We. Oui. They do that, you know. <sighs> Not when they're supposed to be co-hosting a podcast. I think I hear him now. Uh, no, monsieur, I believe that is a violin. Aye, and it'd be coming from his shoebox. You mean his newsroom? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, let's go to the newsroom. Fine, but we don't need the music, Mac. Ma- Max. Max, turn it off. Hi, we bit touchy, eh? Besides, Nigel's already playing his own music. Uh, let me. Uh... Nigel, come out, see vous play. Uh, he'll never hear that. Here, let me try, lass. Mosey, Mosey, let me. Nigel, Nigel, showtime. I say, come in, come in. Anyone care for tea? Uh, no, thanks. It's time for today's episode. Oh, dear me. Where did the time go? Mosey, what are you doing fiddling around then? Well, first, it's a violin. We've discussed this before, old chap. And secondly, it's not me playing. Well, who is it? That is young Liam Cole. Liam is a fan of the podcast and of Miss Jenny's books in general, and decided to present us with a bit of his artistic musical endeavors. Oh, and he plays the fiddle pretty well, too. It is a violin. 
You see, when I realised today's episode, we'd be travelling to London and uh, the very theatre where I once accompanied Handel with Messiah... Ah, here we go. I began waxing nostalgic, and Liam's playing seemed to be just the ticket. Ah, perhaps one day young Liam will be a virtuoso. Aye, and maybe even famous. Uh, But don't be calling them names, lass. And perhaps one day we'll bring the next chapter of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. I say, uh, shouldn't we already be doing that? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Chapter 12. A Tragedy in London. London, May 30th, 1745. Liz walked through the green grass along the banks of the Thames, breathing in the fresh air and thinking about the long history she had with this river. She, Al, and Clary had stood on the banks of the Thames when their Roman centurion, Armandus Antonius, was sent here to scope out the land, to collect engineering, trade, and military intelligence, and to strengthen the bonds of the Rome-Britannia alliance. Liz smiled, recalling Armandus's words to Roman-appointed King Virica and a group of his tribesmen. My men and I have studied the water here and found it to be narrow enough to build a bridge, but deep enough for Roman ships to enter and make port. If only you could see Londinium now, Armandus, Liz said out loud. Your bridge made London not only the center of power of the Roman Empire in Britannia, but now the center of power for the entire world. It was also here on the banks of the Thames ten years ago, in 1735, that Liz, Al, and Nigel had begun their mission with George F. Handel. They stowed away on a boat at the royal palace of Hampton Court to follow the king's courier to deliver the bad news to Handel. King George II had passed him over as the new master of the king's music. But that shattering disappointment was the open door they needed to eventually inspire his masterpiece, Messiah. Liz gazed at the path leading into the beautiful gardens of Kew Palace. King George II and Queen Caroline had lived here early on in their reign, but preferred Kensington Palace in London or summers at Hampton Court Palace. Their oldest daughters, Anne, Caroline, and Amelia, now lived here at the Red Brick Kew Palace, while their oldest son, Frederick, Prince of Wales, lived across in the White House on the palace grounds. Frederick and his father, the king, had a bitter falling out, so he kept his distance from the royal court at the other palaces. He was heir to the throne, but his father wished it otherwise. Prince Frederick and Princess Augusta were happy at the White House here at Kew, enjoying country life and raising their many children, including their oldest son, George. Gilliman had said that George would someday be king, and Al's mission was to gather intelligence while living in the palace. As Liz walked along the fragrant path filled with colorful flowers of every variety imaginable, She sighed with delight for Al, yet wished she could be here with Al always. How she adored gardens. Someday, cher Albert, we shall have another garden together. You must be so happy living here, without a care in the world in this garden paradise. Suddenly she heard Al screaming at the top of his lungs. Albert! she cried, starting to run in the direction of his voice. Soon she came upon a lush, green, open space, and there she saw Al being chased by a dog. She stopped in her tracks, 
to assess the situation, Bassoon started to giggle. Al's short, pudgy legs took him as fast as they could. His pursuer's legs weren't much longer, although they were indeed fast. Al was being chased by a fawn and white-colored corgi nipping at his heels. True to form for this Welsh herding dog, the corgi was running in semicircles behind Al, nipping at him from side to side. Liz knew Al wasn't in danger. He was just being herded for sport. Liz jumped up on a stone wall and sat there, amused at her mate. This is good exercise, no? she thought, as Al led the corgi zigzagging across the grounds. When they came near, Liz cupped a paw to her mouth and shouted, If only Henriette were here to rescue you, my love! She hearkened back to the obnoxious French hen she assigned to protect Al from an angry Spanish bull who chased him on the way to Noah's Ark. Al's eyes grew wide and a big grin appeared on his face as he spotted Liz sitting there on the wall. Liz! he shouted happily. He immediately stopped in his tracks and turned to face the corgi, who rushed up to him and bit him on the nose. Ouch! Stop it, Molly! he cried, swatting the dog back on the nose and pointing to Liz. Me Liz has arrived! He held his other paw over his aching nose. Molly panted heavily, allowing her large tongue to hang out the side of her mouth. Her large rounded ears shot out diagonally from a head that looked much too large for her elongated body and stubby legs. Why don't you say so? She asked with a beautiful Welsh accent. Liz jumped down from the wall as Al ran over to envelop her in a smothering, welcoming hug. Liz, are you really here, lass? I'm so happy to see you. Bonjour, Albert. I'm happy to see you, too, Liz replied, looking over Al's shoulder at the corgi. You have a new friend. Aye, that's Molly. I can't get her to stop chasing me, Al replied with a frown and a hoarse whisper, still breathing hard. It must be your irresistible charm, mon cher, Liz said with a kiss on Al's cheek as Molly came up to them. Bonjour, Molly. I am Liz. Uh, merci for keeping our belt in such good shape. <laughs> good day, Liz. It comes naturally to me. <laughs> Molly giggled. Al told me you were coming today. Welcome to Q. Liz saw that Molly's collar had a printed copper plate attached. May I? She asked as she leaned over to read the inscription. I am His Highness's dog at Q. Pray tell me whose dog are you? The humans have given you quite the humorous color. My master had it engraved when he gave me to Prince Frederick, Molly explained. He was a poet. I, the poop's a poet, and he knows it, Al said with a nod, still rubbing his nose. He knew it, Molly corrected him. But Alexander Pope died last year. He used to visit Q frequently and was good friends with Prince Frederick. I am sorry to hear this, Molly, Liz replied. Al's eyes widened. But that's why you're here, lass. There's a special play Gilliman wants you to see tonight in London. Molly's Pope wrote a little ditty at the beginning of the play, so they be having a special performance in his memory. He leaned over and smiled. And I get to take ye on a date to the theater. Liz looked puzzled. Well, I am very happy to go on a date with you, Albel. This is very curious. 
I wondered why I needed to come to London, but why would Gilliman bring me from America to see a play? From America? Molly asked with big eyes. That's a long way to come. Kit will be there too, Al explained with a whisper. Then turning to Molly, he pointed over at a large bird walking in the distance. Look, Molly, the pheasant's out for a walk. Molly took off running and barking after the beautiful bird. It's easier to just send her chasing after something than to explain how you got here, lass. Oh, good thinking, Albel, Liz complimented him with a smile. How unusual to see a pheasant here. Oh, there be all sorts of beasties here at Kew, Al replied. Little George's mum loves gardening and even made a menagerie of animals for her wee lads and lassies to enjoy. There'd be talk about them even getting a kangaroo. Liz's eyes widened. A kangaroo in London? I look forward to seeing the menagerie, but I am looking forward most of all to seeing Kit tonight. Do you get to see her often? Ah, she stops by every now and then. Kit's David Henry were friends with the poop, and the poop were friends with the lad named Addison, who wrote the play, Al explained. You mean Alexander Pope, not the Pope, Liz replied. Albert, where is the play to be performed? In the very same place we got to see Mosey play along with Handel on his fiddle, Al replied. Boom! At Theatre Royal, Covent Garden, Liz exclaimed. How exciting to return to the same theatre where we saw Messiah's London debut. What is the name of the play we will be seeing? Al wrinkled his forehead and scratched his head. Uh, I don't remember it all, but you may get sad, lass. It's some sort of tragedy about a dog like Kate, I think. At least, it sounds like it. Liz wrinkled her brow, perplexed about the subject. While I am here in London, I need to find a book for my Henry before his father begins his schooling at home. Perhaps we can go to a bookstore before our theatre date? Al shook his head. No, lass, I've got a better idea. Our date can start no. What do you mean, Albert? Liz asked, tilting her head with a grin. Follow me. Al wore a happy smile and trotted off across the green grass toward the red-brick Dutch-style palace. We're going to a school fit for a little king. Liz gaped up at the shelves of books that ran from floor to ceiling in the royal library. I must be in heaven. There are hundreds of books here. C'est magnifique. Al held up his pudgy paw. Welcome to little George's schoolroom. Le Petit Prince has a happy place to learn, no? Liz exclaimed as she walked along the row of books. Oh, if only my Henry could have access to all these books. Well, I can help the lad with one he needs anyway. They must have a couple of each book here, so little George won't miss lending one to little Patrick. Besides, every royal palace has a library, so they got lots of extras, Al said. Who be the writer you need? Plutarch, Liz replied happily, watching Al as he jumped up to a second-tier shelf. L-M-N-O-P, Al chanted until he found the right section. And what be the name of the book? Liz curled her tail up and down expectantly. Plutarch's Lives, Volume 2. Is this writer a kitty? 
inquired Al as he looked along the spines for the right title. Liz giggled. <laughs> no, why? Well, how many lives do this Plutarch have? Kitties have at least nine, Al answered. Of course, we'll never run out of lives, lass. And I am happy for that, Liz answered. Plutarch, Al shouted as he located the books. This lad has lots of lives up here, lass. Liz clapped her paws. Boom, but I only need one. Plutarch's Lives, Volume 2. Got it. Uh, watch out, Baloo, Al exclaimed, tipping back the book. It fell to the floor with a thud. Liz ran over to the book. C'est ça, merci, Albert. This is exactly what I hope to find. She kissed him, and he started purring wildly. You're welcome, me love, Al said dreamily. Anything for me, lass. Suddenly they heard footsteps coming down the hall. Al's eyes widened. Uh-oh. They must have heard me drop the book. Liz looked quickly around the room. What shall we do? Hurry! Al scooped up the book under one leg and went running on his other three legs down the hall. Follow me, lass! Together they hurried outside and hid under a finely trimmed hedge in the garden. <sighs> that were close, Al exclaimed. Liz nodded rapidly and spied two young boys running by. Albel, is that he? Is that le petit prince George? Aye, that's him, Al answered, the future king of England himself. Amazing to think he and my Henry are just boys now, Liz answered. And they'll both be reading Plutarch, Al declared as he thumped the book with his paw. No, that's what they call gathering intelligence. I look forward to seeing what they do with what they learn, Liz replied. I suppose we must leave the book here until nightfall. Uh, so how shall we get to the theater from here? In style, Al announced with a flirty grin. Only the best for me, lass. The clip-clop of horse hooves echoed like a symphony off the busy cobblestone street of Drury Lane. Carriages lined the streets with the elite of London society, who were being dropped off at the Theatre Royal here in Covent Garden. The excited buzz of the people dressed in their finery grew to a frenzy as the gold and black carriage of Frederick, Prince of Wales, arrived. Out stepped the prince and the princess onto a red carpet laid out for their welcome. While the humans were busy eyeing the royals, Al and Liz peeked out from their hiding place behind a small trunk on the back of the prince's carriage. Kate spotted them immediately. Over here, Kate called, wagging her tail happily. She was standing next to a carriage parked by a side alley. Liz and Al jumped off the carriage and ran over to the white Westie. Welcome to London, Liz. Oh, what a joy to see you, mon ami, and for such an exciting evening as well. Liz replied, kissing Kate on each cheek. So your David Henry will be here? Aye, Anne Gilliman has arranged for him and Clary to sit next to David as they did at Messiah, Kate said happily, wagging her tail. It's almost like deja vu all over again, Al mused. C'est magnifique! Uh, did Gilliman tell you he and Lady Clary met John Henry and my Patrick at the St. Andrew's Day Festival in Virginia? Liz asked. Aye, he told me all about the fiddle he brought for Patrick and the riddle mouse he fiddled with it, Kate answered. Gilliman said it'd be a magic fiddle. 
Al's eyes widened. Hey, diddle diddle, a magic fiddle. Maybe I could play it then, just like in the rain. If you come to Virginia during this mission, I will see that you get to do just that, Albert, Liz assured him with a pat on his cheek. Al grew excited at the thought. If I be the cut with a magic fiddle, that means I can make a cow jump over the moon. And I'll laugh to see such sport, Kate added with a giggle. Just then a carriage pulled up in front of the theater. When the footman opened the door, out stepped a man in a magnificent red cloak, followed by a beautiful lady in a blue dress. Look who has arrived, Liz said, pointing to the carriage. Gilliman took Clary by the hand and glanced over at the animals, smiling and touching his elegant hat with a finger in recognition as they walked into the theater. Liz mouthed, Bonsoir. Her eyes lit up with excitement. She couldn't wait to see what this play was all about. Shall we sneak in like we did last time? Kate asked, looking down the alley that led to the backstage door. I know the way, Al exclaimed, with a paw pointed up in the air. He ran ahead to the back door and jumped up to release the latch, hanging on the door while it swung open. After ye lassies. Liz and Kate looked at one another and smiled. I must say I like this royal treatment, Albert. Palace life suits you, mon cher. Liz teased with a coy grin as she and Kate stepped inside. Just using me royal charm, lass, Al replied with a goofy grin. Once Kate, Liz, and Al were hidden in the very top of the theater on a rafter, they scanned the audience to spot Gilliman and Clary sitting on the tenth row in the center. Prince Frederick and Princess Augusta sat in one of the royal boxes with gilded plush armchairs and the balcony decorated in ornate red and gold. The audience was buzzing about the presence of the royals, looking up to steal a glimpse of them seated high above the theater. Liz then noticed the Roman columns decorating the stage. Kate, uh, Albert could not remember the name of this play, but said it was a tragedy. Do you know what it is called? Liz asked. Aye, it's called Keto, Kate replied. Al slapped the railing. That's right, Keto. See, I knew it would like Kate's name. Liz's eyes widened. Keto? There is a play about Keto? I hoped I would find a copy of the story of Keto in Plutarch's Lives while in London, but I did not know about this play. Kate grinned. It's not a new play. Gilliman said Joseph Addison wrote it way back in 1712, and the humans have loved seeing it for more than 30 years. He said they even present it in the colonies. Why have I not heard of this play in Virginia? Liz wanted to know, her tail swishing excitedly to learn this news. Maybe because you're not in a big city like me and Kate here in London. Gilliman said ye, Max, and Mosey be living in the country, Al posited, drawing surprised looks from Liz and Kate. He was right. Bien sûr, this is true, Albert, Liz answered with a wink. Al grinned happily. Before Kato were first performed back in 1713, Addison asked his friend Alexander Poop to write a few words to open up the play. Kate explained. Tonight's performance is dedicated to Pope. Oh, that's nice of them to honor the Pope like that, Al remarked absent-mindedly. Aye, and the same Joseph Addison who wrote this play also founded The Spectator, that later became Gentleman's Magazine, where me David Henry is editor now. 
Kate added. Liz then spotted David Henry making his way down the aisle. Uh, speaking of which, Mr. Gilliman, Lady Clarie, David Henry asked, checking his ticket and slipping into his seat next to Gilliman and Clarie. Why, this is a delightful surprise to see you once more at the theater. He tipped his hat to Clarie and reached out his hand to Gilliman. Gilliman reached over and shook David's hand with a warm smile. Indeed, what a coincidence, Mr. Henry. It's a pleasure to see you again also. We had the privilege of meeting your cousin John when we were in Virginia, Clarie added. His son Patrick made the connection from the letter you sent about the Messiah concert. Yes, young Patrick wrote to me about the chance meeting he also had with you, and he was thrilled to receive the fine fiddle you brought from London, David added. John tells me the boy practices it continually. I am delighted to hear it, replied Gilliman with a knowing grin. So have you seen Cato performed? Oh, yes, many times, David answered. I am certainly indebted to Mr. Addison's work, both for the magazine and for this inspiring play. But I came tonight in honor of Mr. Pope's memory, so I can write an article for Gentleman's Magazine. Gilliman nodded. We learned that Cato is becoming popular even in the colonies, although not yet performed by such a large theater company as in London. The religious community in America has long considered plays to be frivolous and a waste of time, and the characters to be of questionable morals. However, Cato appears to be causing even the most rigid types to warm to the idea of seeing Plutarch's hero come to life. David raised his eyebrows and nodded. I doubt my cousin John has seen it, although being the scholar that he is, he knows his Plutarch. Given that Mr. Pope also translated Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, perhaps Mr. Henry would be more inclined to read any of Mr. Pope's work, including his introduction for Cato, Gilliman suggested. Mr. Gilliman and I discovered that many in America do enjoy reading the plays, even if they never see them performed, Clarie quickly offered, letting their unspoken suggestion linger in the air for a moment. The audience started to applaud as the curtain rose to reveal a scene from ancient Rome. David leaned into Gilliman and Clarie with a smile. I will have to write to John about this evening as well, about seeing you both again, and, of course, about Cato. Gilliman smiled and nodded. As David turned his gaze toward the stage, Gilliman turned to lock eyes with Liz, also giving her a smile and a nod. Shh, the please, Storton, Al said, clapping his fluffy paws together. He was spellbound at seeing a Roman actor dressed in a toga take the stage, welcoming the audience. I haven't seen a human dressed like that in years. It's almost like deja vu all over again. And now, to honor the memory of Mr. Alexander Pope, I will recite for you his prologue for Cato, a tragedy. To wake the soul by tender strokes of art, to raise the genius and to mend the heart, to make mankind in conscious virtue bold, live o'er each scene and be what they behold. For this the tragic muse first trod the stage, Commanding tears to stream through every age. Tyrants no more their savage nature kept, And foes to virtue 
wondered how they wept. Our author shuns by vulgar springs to move the hero's glory or the virgin's love. In pitying love we but our weakness show, and wild ambition well deserves its woe. Here tears shall flow from a more generous cause, such tears as patriots shed for dying laws. He bids your breasts with ancient ardor rise, and calls forth Roman drops from British eyes. For this the tragic muse first trod this stage, commanding tears to stream through every age. Liz repeated in her mind as the actor continued reciting the prologue. He bids your breasts with ancient ardor rise, and calls forth Roman drops from British eyes. Cato captured Liz's complete attention. She didn't say a word as the play moved on from scene to scene, showing the Roman statesman and his band of Roman exiles in Utica making a last stand against the tyrant Julius Caesar. Soon they came to Act the Second, Scene Four, and her unbroken attention was about to break. Juba put a hand humbly over his heart. Cato, thou hast a daughter. Cato lifted a hand to stop the young man. Adieu, young prince. I would not hear a word should lessen thee in my esteem. Remember, the hand of fate is over us, and heaven exacts severity from all our thoughts. It is not now a time to talk of aught, but chains or conquest, liberty or death. Al leaned over and whispered to Liz, "'What's ought mean?' Liz blinked as Al broke her undivided attention to Cato. "'Ought means uh, anything. Cato is telling Juba that now is not the time to talk about the young man's love for Cato's daughter. Greater things are at stake at this moment.' "'Like if they should surrender to that tyrant lad Julius Caesar,' Al answered, nodding thoughtfully. So they shouldn't be talking about anything but liberty or death. Suddenly the scene of Gilliman in the Iamosphere in Rome came rushing back to Liz's mind. She had just dreamed about this scene of the real Cato the night before. Yes, for Cato, it was either liberty or death, Gilliman answered. Liz shot a glance down at Gilliman, who stared up at her with a twinkle in his eyes. In that moment, she figured out more of the riddle. She leaned over and whispered to Kate, A voice from the past. C'est ça. The Plutarch connection with Patrick Henry has to mean not just the story of Cato in Plutarch's lives, but the story of Cato in Addison's play. Aye, since Killiman brought us here tonight, that makes sense, Kate whispered back. I can see young Patrick reading and learning about Cato. But how can a play help him, then? Je ne sais pas. Liz wrinkled her brow and stared down at Gilliman, sitting next to David Henry. The layers of history continue to unfold, just as Gilliman said. At least you know more than you did before, lass. Kate encouraged her happily. You'll figure it out. Oui, mon ami. But there is one thing I know for certain. Liz stared at the actor portraying Cato on the stage, now with a drawn sword on the table next to him. It will have something to do with liberty or death.
I say, layers of history indeed. In fact, in today's visit to Jenny's Corner, uh, Miss Jenny will help us peel back the layers even further. So, we shan't delay. Uh, Miss Jenny, please expound on today's portion of the story. This chapter has so much in it, and so much fun, of course. Isn't it wonderful to see Al again, and he's just always so funny. <laughs> oh, wow, oui, madame. Oh, Al. Oh, knock it off, s'il vous plaît. And it's something that Al always gets to live in the palaces with kings and royalties, and in this case, he's going to be with King George the Third. And I suspect he'll be well fed, what? <laughs> you think? <laughs> Quite. Uh, and Miss Jenny, was the palace indeed filled with all sorts of animals? It was really fascinating to research the royal palaces and to see that they did have like a menagerie. They had wild animals and peacocks and things running around. But King George III had an extensive library. He was a big reader. So Liz goes there, of course, to borrow a volume of Plutarch. But while they're there, they, of course, go to the theater to see this new play, Cato. Now, if you're paying close attention, you're going to see how crucial this play was. Joseph Addison, of course, wrote the play about Cato the Younger. Hmm, how would he have learned about Cato the Younger? What did he have to read? Oh, I know, I know, I know. If you said Plutarch, you're right. So, in order for Addison to write the play, Cato, he would have had to read the book by Plutarch. That's why it was so important for Liz to inspire Plutarch to write about him. Well, I don't like to brag. Well, then, don't. <laughs> well done, old boy. <laughs> So this play Cato has the theme of tyranny versus liberty, and it was written in about 1712, and it became a wildly popular play, ironically, in England, and the play actually came over to America, and it became the Founding Fathers' favorite play. George Washington loved to attend performances of Cato. So I hope that you are paying very close attention to what Cato said in the scene with Juba, where he says, It is not now a time to talk of aught, but chains or conquest, liberty or death. So you're going to see a future scene that happens with Patrick Henry saying these words, and it is from this play that he took them. Ah, the plot thickens. Well, thank you, Miss Jenny, for your insights. Aye! And thank you, Miss Jenny, for bringing Molly into the story <laughs> to chase Elle around the palace. <laughs> Max, that was uncalled for. Though I must admit, Elle was in better shape during that time than... Uh... Any other time? <laughs> we and speaking of time, it is time to wrap things up for this episode. Uh, Monsieur Announcer? Well, thanks, Liz. Now, before we leave... First, I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. And if you're enjoying it, please tell a friend or a bunch of friends. Hey, even have a listening party. That'd be fun. And if this is your first exposure to Jenny L. Cody's amazing stories, I invite you to check out her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. Epicorderoftheseven.com. And you'll find all her books there, as well as the brand new VRK Study Guide. In fact, at a recent homeschool conference, one mom shared how much these books had influenced her daughter's reading habits. 
My name is Yeli. I began homeschooling in January, so I'm new to this. But one of the main reasons was that before that, while my daughter was in regular school, she loved reading books. She loved picking up a book. After the last semester with the whole online schooling and everything that went on, she lost complete interest to the point that she did not want to pick up a book. Mm. She did not want to go read by herself. She didn't even want to read to the dog, which is what she used to do before. And today, for the first time since then, I've seen her be excited about picking up a book, excited about wanting to learn more about the story, and excited about wanting to read it herself. So I just want to say this was like a blessing. I myself, I'm enthusiastic about everything, and I'm just very grateful for you. Again, check out her website for all the great books by Jenny L. Cody. EpicOrderOfTheSeven.com Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.